tonight. A conversation on mental health and suicide. Young Black Americans are taking their lives in greater numbers than ever before. We look into why. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. Tonight we're taking a look at mental health, which when overlooked can have dire consequences on our emotional, psychological and social well-being. Now that's the focus of our new conversation series that continues tonight with a look at Black suicide. The recent deaths of Black former Miss USA, Chelsea Crist, and Ian Alexander Jr., the son of actress Regina King, have put a spotlight on the recent rise in suicides in the Black community and the disturbing trends that show that Black children are being impacted more than ever. Now, from 1991 to 2019, self-reported suicide attempts among Black adolescents rose nearly 80%. Historically viewed as a white problem, many Black children are now twice as likely to lose their lives to suicide as white children. Stigma surrounding mental health, a lack of professional resources, online cyberbullying, racial injustice, and now the isolation caused by the pandemic can all be to blame for this troubling phenomenon. Joining us to dig deeper into those reasons and discuss what we can do to best support those struggling young people is Dr. Michael Lindsay. Dr. Lindsay is the executive director of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. Dr. Lindsay, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you for having me. We are also joined tonight by Shauna Pinnock. Shauna is a journalist with lived experience with suicide. Shauna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And we're also joined tonight by Dion Monsanto. Dion is a mental health advocate who is also a suicide loss survivor. Dion, thank you for joining us. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, Shauna, I want to start with you because not only do you have your own lived experience, but you are actually friendly with, or at least you knew, uh, the former Miss USA, Chelsea Chris, who made headlines when she ended her life. So first, can you take us back to not only how did you know her, but how did you hear about how her life ended? Mm -hmm. uh, so Chesley, um, while I was working at uh, thegrail.com as their social media director, um, I think maybe like my first year there and Chesley, uh, as well as I cannot remember their names right now, but the other two young ladies who also won Miss America and Miss Teen USA, um, you know, all black women, young black women, and they came to the office for an interview. We were able to, you know, just have a great dialogue with them. Uh, Chesley, I wrote in my article, um, you know, which I titled 
you know, thoughts of a color, of a color girl who has considered suicide often. Um, Chesley was amazing, just incredibly sweet and humble and poised and gracious. And I remember the crazy part is when Chesley's death happened, it was about a week full of hearing about, uh, you know, su- death by suicide from numerous sources, uh, you know, Ian Alexander Jr., who was Regina King's son. Uh, there was a, a, a politician who he died by suicide. Um, and it just it was a very triggering event. And as a social media director, you know, you're never it's it's never sleep. You know, you it's a constant go all the time as it relates to social. And so when I got the news, uh, I believe it was a TMZ alert from an app um, letting me know that Chesley had passed away and was a suspected suicide. And I was in the car with my boyfriend. We were driving home and I read the news and I immediately went into work mode. I'm texting my team and, you know, the rest of the editorial team, like we need to jump on this story. Let's make sure we have a post up about Chesley. And once all of that had settled and I'm sitting in the car in complete silence and I burst into tears because I distinctly remember feeling the way that I'm sure Chesley felt when she decided to make a decision, um, a pretty permanent decision. Um, And it's, it's heartbreaking to see another young black woman. Chesley was only 30 years old. Um, My suicide attempt was at the age of 28. So I know what's going on in our heads at that point in time. And then to have to then brace myself, because again, social media, to have to brace myself for a lot of the ignorant and sometimes unempathetic responses to suicide. Uh, A lot of people try to turn it into some kind of moral issue or, you know, saying, oh, how could they be so selfish? And, oh, well, I don't, I don't believe that she did it. Like jumping off of a building, that's not what Black folks do. Um, And it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And, and for those who have not experienced the deep, deep, deep uh, depths of depression and suicidal thoughts, lucky you, how does it feel to be the chosen ones? Uh, but I know what that feels like. And it's it's a darkness that you, you can't pray it away. No one can love you out of that. You have to be able to try to pull yourself out of it. And unfortunately, not everyone wants to do so. Um, you know, there's always this idea of, oh, it gets better. Uh-huh. When you're in that darkness, there's, there is no better. You can't, you, you're feeling this pain, this despair. And especially if you're, I mean, which a lot of young black women do, our depression doesn't often look like our white counterparts. You know, maybe we're not crying and, and just sad and, you know, stuck in the bed all the time. Sometimes that depression can look like being overworked. Sometimes that depression can look like I'm moving and I'm going and I'm going and I have this smile on my face so that everybody thinks that I'm okay. But when I am by myself in the dark at night, it is not that way. Um, It is incredibly painful to be in a room full of people and still feel so alone because you you can't express to others how you're feeling because then there's always the possibility that you'll hear well, you have all these things, these great things going for you. And, and you know, well, what do you have to be depressed about or pray it away? 
it's it's a it's a really hard um reality for a lot of folks and you know my heart and my love and condolences and dearest empathy go to Chesley's family um you know especially those who may not be able to understand why she took the step that she did of course of course well first of all I want to thank you for giving me the correct pronunciation of her name because in saying her name correctly we are remembering her uh Dion I want to turn to you though and get your take on um not just how you felt uh, when you heard about, of course, these high profile instances of suicide, but what your own personal uh, experience is with it, because you had a very, very intimate loss. Yes. Um, thank you for that. And thank you for speaking so beautifully, Shauna, because I I felt what you said and I really felt it um, from the mother perspective, from having lost my daughter almost 11 years ago. She was 15 when she died by suicide. And what you said was exactly who she was in terms of being the brilliant child and the person that was always the best in her class within the top five, maybe top 10 and always doing the best and the most and the most awarded. So it immediately brought me back to a reflection of who my child was in the world at school, at her dance school, with her music, you know, um, being musically inclined, being a writer and so many different things and how depression can have a beautiful smile on its face. Depression can have A's and A pluses and can have high accolades and seeing that with Chesley. And I immediately thought of her mom and same thing with Ian, my heart goes out to the mothers. And I generally do a lot of work now as a mental health advocate in reaching out to the parents and the siblings and the cousins and making sure people know it's not their fault because it's really hard to understand on the other side. People feel like, what did I do wrong? Um, why did I not see it? And that was a big part of the interviews, as you know, uh, being a journalist about, we didn't see it. This person right you know, right there, other interviews I've done, I've done with live survivors saying, the closest ones, your loved ones, not being able to see the signs and what does the sign look like and what does it look like in particular for our community? And how do you check in on your strong friends as the phrase became? And how do you connect to your joy and how do you know yourself well enough to know when you're down and who can check in on you? And that's something I work a lot with, with my clients and talking to people about self-reflection. And when they asked me how I got through guilt, and I said, quite honestly, I did everything I could knowing my daughter was depressed to have support with her. I'm glad you have a doctor here because she was absolutely in therapy and working with them. So family therapy, individual therapy, and making sure we know ourselves well enough to know what your triggers are. Like, I really appreciate you saying that um, the media even though it was your job, knowing this, it was a trigger for you and you did your job and then you sat back in tears and allowing yourself to process your grief. We don't always, we as people of color don't always give ourselves space to process grief. We don't always give ourselves space to even experience joy because there's a level of guilt about being a survivor and do we deserve to be joy-filled and have a happy life after this level of loss. So it brought up all of that and more. And, you know, for me, my daughter's birthday just passed. She would have been 26 this year, um, having died at 15. And one of the things in finding ways to live 
for myself, for my other surviving children, as well as to create a path for other lost survivors. Um, one of the things I did was write a book in my daughter's honor, and that launched on her birthday. So I told people I gave birth to two things on March 8th. My first book in her honor, because she was a writer, as well as my daughter, who was no longer you know, with us. So that was something that helped me move forward and something I lean into supporting our people and people in general and knowing that joy is their birthright and creating a path for them to get back to joy after such tragic loss and grief in the world and in our personal lives. Well, Dr. Lindsay, I want to bring you in now because uh, I'm sure for at least other people who are in the Black community, perhaps they're hearing things and they're hearing the subtle uniqueness that makes the Black experience in America so very specific. But for people who aren't in the community, what is unique that Black youth are experiencing that perhaps, uh, and not just white youth, but just other people of color aren't experiencing in the same way that makes this crisis of suicide so um, dangerous? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And I want to thank you and Metro Focus for convening this conversation. Um, Shauna, Dion, I want to thank you for sharing your stories of, of, of just your encounters with uh, the challenges related to surviving, uh, as well as whatever challenges one might go through that may uh, lead them to engage in suicide behaviors. Um, and I just, just want to thank you all so much for uh, your, your courage and telling the stories because I believe it's going to help someone. Um, I think about your question a lot in the context of the work we're doing with, uh, with trying to ring the alarm, quite literally. And we framed our work at the federal level working with Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman and other members of the Congressional Black Caucus to ring the alarm on Black youth suicide. I think uh, a couple of things are really, really, let me outline three actually that are really unique for Black youth. One, um, you know, we talked about stigma or the lack of connection to treatment is really huge in uh, communities of color and certainly in the Black community. Um, you heard Shauna say that there's a lot of uh, normative kinds of um, sentiment around praying about it, talking to God, go to church uh, to try to figure it out. And we do that uh, disproportionately more than we uh, will go to a mental health professional, right? So that makes it really nuanced and, and unique. The second thing I think is that is really important is that we know that there are uh, disproportionality um, matters related to um, the sort of behaviors and um, and and being suspended uh, from school for behaviors that other communities might have the benefit of being the recipient of mental health supports and services, but black and brown kids get suspended. And oftentimes there's a misinterpretation of uh, their behaviors. Uh, Shauna said it beautifully, depression looks different in our community. And so for some black kids, they might 
um, express their depression symptoms in volatile ways um, or angry or explosive ways. Uh, I once had a kid who I worked with in therapy um, and interviewed um, uh, for some other work who said that when he was depressed, he wanted to go and knock someone's head off because he wanted them to feel the same pain that he felt, right? And so um, oftentimes, again, it is the case that black and brown kids are being suspended or expelled from school in lieu of receiving uh, formal mental health treatment uh, to address those issues. And then I think the third thing I think that's really important is that um, we know that in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, 20 years or so, there's well-documented stories of Black folks who are dying at the hands of vigilante or uh, perhaps, uh, unfortunately, related to law enforcement encounters. And I think those uh, experiences uh, sort of engender a sense of vicarious trauma. Uh, it might also lead to a sense of hopelessness or helplessness with respect to what it means to be black or brown in America. And so I think kids are, uh, um, kids of color, black and brown kids are increasingly feeling that sense of hopelessness or helplessness that makes them feel like life is not worth living, unfortunately. And so perhaps then those collective experiences are what we see in more nuanced ways in the Black community that we might not see in other communities. So then that brings me back to uh, how to reach out and help, because uh, Dion and Shauna, as you both so eloquently pointed out, is that uh, particularly for young Black people and young Black women, uh, you know, depression can have a beautiful smile on its face. And of course, with the presence of social media, which is just pre present in everyone's life, um, you see a lot of focus on, you know, as the kids would say, doing it for the gram. Like there's a lot of focus on putting your best foot forward and looking your best and shining in your black excellence. How do you, if someone, how are you able to tell when someone is doing that to overcompensate or when they're just genuinely just proud of themselves and just expressing, you know, the pride in something that they've accomplished. How do you balance those two? And Dion, I see you're nodding your head, so I'll give you the floor. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I definitely would love uh, Dr. Lindsay to interject if he disagrees, but I think there are subtleties with talk mood and behavior. And even though you're seeing all these positive things on the gram, there's also this level of knowing. Each one of us have been on the planet long enough to have this intuitive knowing in our gut and our gut feeling. So if I'm looking at you going, everything's great, I'm so happy, and your gut goes, mm, something's wrong, you should listen to your gut. And you should also think in your, uh, in your knowing that you're the only person that's going to reach out to them. You're the only person that's going to say, Shauna, that grand post looked great, but it just seemed a little off. How are you really? What's going on? Mm -hmm. And and to ask them directly, like, I'm concerned about you. I don't know what's going on with you and you can talk to me. So it's listening to your gut. And if they say little things like my daughter gave me a prized possession. So if somebody calls you up and like, I haven't spoken to you in a while, I really love you. I want to get together with you and give you something. Some of those really nice calls are farewell calls. Mm -hmm. And 
didn't dawn on me so much I learned afterward in training with um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention that people giving away their prized possession is a behavior that is letting you know. So they're happy, they cleaned up their room, everything looks wonderful, and they're giving away their things, they're purging, they're clearing the way to leave. And so just check in and be like, wow, this is so great. I love this. You know, if somebody's giving you their purple heart, like, um, wow, this is really important to you. Why would you want to keep that? What's going on? So it's digging deeper than what's at the surface. Mm-hmm. Sean, and, is that something you would agree with and say that, uh, you know, that would be a clue? Um, partially. Uh, so for me, I, I didn't give anything away, but I was very um, communicative. I'm, I'm one of those friends who you may not hear from me every single day, but you know where the love is. But then all of a sudden I was reaching out to, you know, certain friends who we, we only check in every, every couple months, <laughs> unless we're physically seeing one another. And I was like, no, I just want to, you know, say, hi, how you doing? Um, I, so the house that I lived in, uh, the brownstone and my parents were living in a two bedroom upstairs and I was on the first floor and my thought process as I was considering taking the steps, um, was I need to make sure that this house is clean. So that at least my mother has like nothing to clean up after me. Um, so I, I cleaned my house. Like if it was a new year, I was, <laughs> it was thick and span. Um, I was hiding, uh, things that I would never want my parents <laughs> to find, uh, you know, somewhere in the house. And what's so crazy is I think, again, everyone handles depression very differently. For me, my misery does not love, it does not love company. So when I'm in that space, I tend to go inward a lot. Um, and after being able to kind of talk about my my failed attempt, um, I've had so many of my friends who they are now like pushy almost <laughs> in order to find out how I'm actually doing. And in all honesty, that helps on top of therapy, on top of, yes, I am a Christian. I am a praying person, but I also recognize that God made therapists. And God made medication and (laughs) God made an opportunity for you to talk about these things because it can't just be, let me get on my knees and pray on and pray on it when things are not changing for me mentally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am incredibly blessed to have a mother who she, she hears when something's off. So if I pick up the phone, you know, my, I live in Atlanta now, my mom is in New York with my dad. And if I'll pick up the phone and I'm like, hey, how are you guys doing? Da, da, da. And my mom is like, what, what's going on with you? What's, what's, what's happening in your voice? And it has become a lot more frequent since, again, since I've actually spoke about what I tried to do in 2015, which my parents were none the wiser. Um, and it hadn't been until I felt comfortable enough to just, you know, to discuss at length, mm-hmm. um, you know, what I was thinking about doing. Um, my parents knew that I have had a history with depression for years, uh, but it never was that serious until it was. Uh, and yeah, it's just a matter of always check in. It is, and on your strong friends and on the weak ones too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't, don't think that any of that matters. If you, if there are people in this world that you care about, that you know, that you love, that 
sometimes you're like, oh, I don't know how they do it. Ask them <laughs> that because that answer could be the thing that saves somebody's life that day. Yeah. Um, Dr. Lindsay, I want to bring you in and get your take, because one of the other things that I want to be clear on is how I guess traditionally had things like depression and mental health issues been addressed or even acknowledged in the black community? How did this become seen as a white problem? And bear in mind, we have about two minutes left, but if you could give us a quick history lesson, just to lay some background for us. Well, I think historically, and it's been unfortunate that not just in the black community, but a lot of communities, have turned to substances, uh, alcohol or drugs. Uh, we call this phenomena self-medication um, in terms of addressing um, their pain. I, I think that we have had a tradition as it has been said of going to church and praying about it. And I think that there were messages. Uh, certainly our clergy have come a long way and are doing a, a much better job of acknowledging that professional help is warranted in times of uh, of need and, and, and encouraging parishioners to go to a professional for help. But for years, um, it, there has been this sort of notion that um, no one can help you like the, the pastor or God, um, or it has been associated with a uh, mental health struggle has been associated with demonic possession. Um, and so we are, again, more informed nowadays and certainly uh, and hopefully less and less of those kinds of messages are being conveyed to uh, to people in the black and other communities. Oh, Shauna, absolutely. Could I interject really quickly? I think also, too, you know, because we are a, a, a Zoom room full of black folks, uh, you know, I've definitely heard, especially like from my older family members, like, I'm black. I don't got time to be depressed. I don't got time to That's true. <laughs> to care yeah. about mental health. You, we've seen, you know, racial justice re reckonings in this country, and you know, we're combating racism and systemic oppression and and everything every mm -hmm. single day. Where mm -hmm. it's like, do I actually have time to sit up here and talk about my feelings and unpack and unlearn and all that other stuff? That sounds like white people mess. That's, that's it, it, it flows very freely. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's an excellent point. Yeah, I was going to say that is an excellent point. Unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there. I want to thank all three of my guests. This is a critically important conversation that we continue. Uh, Dr. Lindsay, Executive Director of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. Shauna Pinnock, a journalist with lived experience with suicide and Dion Monsanto, a mental health advocate and author uh, who is also a suicide loss survivor. Thank you all so much for joining us on Metro Focus. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Metro Focus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with Metro Focus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, wliw.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.